Indonesia. This is Doug Livingston and the Renewable Energy Hour. And joining me is my guest co-host, Chris Love. Hey, Chris, how are you doing this evening? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? All right. A long, hard day, but coming to the end of it. One, yep. one more struggle. Spend an hour on live radio. Yep. Uh, it's a little easier these days with it getting dark earlier for me to... <laughs> get to seven o'clock without struggling <laughs> well you'd think it'd be the opposite well well i mean you know getting getting away from a job site where the phone doesn't work ah you know, that, I see. that type of stuff you can get away <laughs> earlier now i see i see yeah um no i'm i'm half retired so i'm often done at one in the afternoon don't you envy me <laughs> Picking, a little bit. <laughs> pick, picking up pieces and doing paperwork by the mid-afternoon. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't envy that. <laughs> well, you do more paperwork than I do is my bet. Probably. But you're probably, you're probably doing it at 10 in the evening, and I'm long since in bed. Yep. Yep, more often than not. Um. So tonight, uh, we decided we want to talk about a variety of hydrogen topics that have been tickling us of late. And uh, one you tickled me with that, that kind of surprised me, I was fairly unaware of the technology, was nickel-hydrogen batteries. Um, and and it's, it's a battery that basically uses nickel as as one anode and uh i guess it gets converted as it as the chemistry changes in charging and discharging and uses uh hydrogen gas at the other anode with a little with a little electrolyzer i mean a proton exchange membrane as near as i can tell and uh you know it sounded all magical and then you know, the more I read, the more I realized that this technology's been out there for 20, 30 years and was reliable enough to power a huge number of the remote space missions. And being the space buff that I grew up as, I was kind of surprised. I wasn't aware of the technology. And, and you brought it to my attention because uh, there's a company going into production for, you know, much larger scale than NASA use of it yeah and that it does look like one of the you know chemical batteries of the future especially for grid scale um but there's definitely a move for the small scale as well yeah Um, well well we can use the the large scale so don't write that off even though the most of the people listening are probably thinking residential scale uh you know it'd be awesome if it got down to that level um but uh, but you know societally and globally and e- ecologically, we need some way to ramp up the solar past where it can be used uh, and be able to store some extra power from that solar and use it when the solar's not around. I.e., the early evening being the biggest deficit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the grid scale is without a doubt you know, where the priority is for all of us as a society. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we need the most of as, as an ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. 
Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's technologies like this, you know, mixing these storage capacities, you know, such as going back to one of the shows you did with, with Alex a while back of the, I forget what they called it exactly, but it's the, you know, having a, a very large in-ground water pump system with a piston that moves oh, up right, and down. Oh, right, right, yeah. And the, these are the types of technologies that we need to, you know, avoid using something like lithium-ion technologies, like, say, down in, you know, the the peaker plants that they're building in the Monterey area where they've they've already had four well very well publicized fires one of which shut down highway one for more than 24 hours i think six weeks ago wow um you know pretty pretty serious occurrence where you know they're the fire nfpa national fire protection association and fire departments are recognizing the just a prolific amount of hydrogen fluoride gas that's produced when these fail and how just absolutely dangerous it is because in, you know, 33 parts per million is what they call the LD50, which is, you know, the amount that it would take to kill somebody, 50% of the people in 30 to 60 seconds. <laughs> uh, my, and, my, I'm, I'm more used to them being run more gently where that, that doesn't occur with regularity, but uh, but still, it's really expensive up front, and you need to replace them after X number of cycles. Um, and so, you know, to me, it's always seemed horrendous to think we're going to rely on some sort of chemical battery storage to to even out the supply on the grid with solar and wind. Um, but but you're excited about these these nickel hydrogens yeah i think i think that's a it's a pretty interesting concept what's what's happening the research has really gone into it there's been quite a bit of research through the decades and and part of one of the the issues has been uh the anode one of the anode materials is actually platinum based metals that's the catalyst Um, that's the catalyst that converts the the hydrogen to the, the proton exchange membrane, as I referred to it earlier. Gotcha. That, um, that, that strips the, yeah, the, the, the hydrogen from the... hydrogen catalyst is what they call it. Yep, yep. And, 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 and that kind of goes towards some of the problems with, with fuel cells in that, you know, majority of that technology is built around platinum-based metals. I'm sure a lot more of it would be available here on Earth if we weren't putting so much of it into catalytic converters <laughs> or gasoline motors. Well, with electric but, with electric cars, we might have a bigger supply available and the price might come down. Yeah, but on the other side of that, if we were to, say, convert you know our entire energy economy to fuel cells on this planet, well, there's not enough platinum in the solar system. Yeah. So yeah. We, we have to have a mix of technologies that are applicable in all the right different climates and or the distances you're dealing with. We're, say, California, we're dealing with vast distances where mid-eastern seaboard, those vast distances include a whole lot more than 40 million people. Well, uh, you know, on a, on a totally tangential thought, it's entirely possible to run a combustion engine off of hydrogen gas without, a catalyst, without fuel cells or electricity at all. Right. Yeah, some, you know, air fuel 
induction conversion and, and such. And I think with the primary issue behind that that's been dealt with for decades and decades is that storing hydrogen in a tank is problematic. It is. You need very high you know. pressure to get any sort of energy density. It's potentially explosive. Mm, um, very explosive. <laughs> well, uh, some of the solutions have been been basically salts that the hydrogen gets dissolved into so it's it's slower to come out and not as crazy explosive but uh you know on the explosive right. front people always talk about the hindenburg and whatnot and when you see those films of the hindenburg burning that's not hydrogen burning that's that's the skin of the dirigible or blimp or whatever you want to call it um mm. the hydrogen explosion happened in a matter of a second it was started by a hydrogen explosion, but it goes Yeah, and as up. soon as there was a hole, it, it was gone. <laughs> it goes up and out and is gone virtually instantaneously. Um, yeah, hydrogen moves much faster than ox- warm oxygen. Well, that's that's, sure. that's part of the problem with uh, with storing it, is it, it's, its average velocity at the same temperature as normal atmospheric gases is astronomical bouncing around because it's so small and also because it's so small between its high speed and its smallness it's you need remarkable seals to keep it contained um right most welders have no concept of that kind of sealing but uh but when it's staying stationary on site in a battery, um, it, it, there are a lot fewer objections to it, and that's one of the cool things about the nickel hydrogen battery. I mean, actually, the one of the neat things that I hadn't realized until I did some reading after you reprompted me on it was that the the pressure in on the hydrogen side goes down as the battery discharges and goes up as the battery charges so a simple pressure gauge is an almost perfect state of charge meter interesting yeah that does make a lot of sense yeah i was reading that they're looking at something in the 1200 psi range and higher for these these hydrogen vessels in the batteries yeah i think uh, i think they they needed at least 600 which is a high pressure expensive tank it's not your average propane tank right um yeah or even anything like you know your air compressor yeah well, it's, it's 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 scuba diver range and up right but uh but it's an interesting technology and it's got no heavy metals no outrageous stuff to mine um but where do you get your hydrogen from Um, I mean, are you asking me in general or specific about this battery? Well, where do humans get hydrogen from these days, currently? Um, boiling water? <laughs> uh, boiling doesn't separate the hydrogen from the oxygen. No, we, uh, right. we, we get our hydrogen. Something like 99% of the commercially available hydrogen in the world is, is extracted from natural gas. And so right. it ends up having about the same carbon footprint, actually a slight bit more than natural gas does because we're ripping out the carbon in natural gas and and uh, getting one CO2 for two H2 molecules 
in the process and <coughs> so we're we're releasing just as much carbon dioxide um for today's industrial hydrogen for, for today's industrial hydrogen needs um plus a little bit of energy to run the process so it's actually slightly lower carbon footprint than than natural gas is but uh but as you said you know you can make hydrogen from water but that involves uh ripping apart the water molecule which is remarkably stable and takes a fair amount of energy to do um but but the hydrogen the h2 molecule that you get out of it has quite a bit of that energy stored in it um and uh the, the two main ways that I see it done are with, you know, old, old school traditional electrolysis, which is fairly low efficiency, but relatively cheap and higher tech catalytic versions like proton exchange membranes and fuel cells and probably on the anodes of these batteries. Wow. We we've struck a nerve with somebody. We're getting a phone call. Should we take a phone call in case they're jumping sure. right in on this topic and want to straighten us out a little bit? All right. Yeah, maybe they'll definitely. For others who want to call in, it's eight nine five two four four eight. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Hi. Couple things. Um, there's an old Nova program that came out in the mid seventies about hydrogen as an alternative fuel source. And I'm sure a reprint is still available. Um, and there's also a titanium-based catalyst that could absorb hydrogen in tanks for use in, like, automobiles or trucks. Um, you say catalyst. That, it, it, it's something that absorbs it, not converts it. Sorry, yeah. it's a. It was a titanium-based... Yeah, crystallized structure that that the hydrogen can get dissolved into. Absorb the hydrogen Mm -hmm. and release it. It's kind of like the NASCAR explosive tanks. I don't don't know them. So NASCAR changed to these explosive, S-A-F-E, tanks so that when there was a crash, the fuel wouldn't cause ah, all right. fire. All right, so it's a, it's sort okay. of absorbed into something and wouldn't, you know, slosh right. out in a and giant also, plume. Exactly, and also runs at lower pressure. Mm-hmm. And while the hydrocarbon industry has latched on to hydrogen and extracts the carbon out of natural gas, as you mentioned, that is the wrong way to go. It's absolutely the wrong way to go. You you can run electrolysis on low voltage PV cells and generate hydrogen all day long. Yep. Yep. Um, that's, that's what we were I mean, just starting to talk about. Okay, great. And then one last thing, the most corrosive effect of the Hindenburg fire was the kerosene from the engines. Huh. All right. I, I knew right. that I knew that the the envelope the the membrane that contained the hydrogen that, was what you were seeing burning silk. in the film. That was mostly silk. It wasn't it it, it 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 wasn't a major factor in the fire. The 
you're correct. The hydrogen exploded in a nanosecond and was 10,000 feet above everybody afterwards at, you know, 10 nanoseconds later. It's the fuel for the engine. <laughs> so it was a kerosene fire. Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's what aviation fuel is. Well, I, 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 uh, I'm always a little nervous on something you said at the very beginning when you talk about hydrogen as being a fuel. People think of it as the energy source, and you always need a different energy source to make the hydrogen. So that different energy source, to me, is the fuel, and the hydrogen's just sort of a storage medium for the energy. But I, I, I understand why you would talk of it as a fuel, but I'm always a little nervous that people think, you know, you can make this fuel out of if, nothing. If, you, if you, you need energy if, to, if, to do it. If you, if you want to look at it from a total cost of ownership, you know, a full cost profile, I understand where you're coming from. But from a physical chemistry perspective, it's a fuel. Yeah, it is a fuel. But, but you got to make it. You won't. You won't be able to find it well, anywhere. So there is a small percentage of hydrogen in our atmosphere. It just happens to rise pretty damn quickly. There is hydrogen generation as a natural process. It's just that to extract it from air is incredibly expensive mm. and the least expensive way to do it is electrolysis electrolysis from water where you basically run a little bit of electricity with some well you you're different you're, metals you're at the anode and cathode that that basically right. rip the hydrogens off of the oxygen and generate hydrogen at one anode and hydrogen gas ah. h2 and oxygen right. gas at the other anode well no Hydrogen doesn't need to bind to, I mean, hydrogen would love to bind to anything, mm-hmm. but it, it, it binds to itself reluctantly. Hmm. Oxygen has really got a much, because it's a larger molecule, has a much stronger bond. Oxygen is what creates the, the strength in that bond, bind. Yeah, and it's interesting because, how, you know, Hydrogen bonds so well to oxygen, so then thus we have water, H2O. But right. you, you can't burn hydrogen alone. You burn hydrogen in the presence of oxygen when they're both vaporized. Well, you, you don't actually burn it. You merely oxidize it. Right. Well, that, that's what I define it's as burning. It's arguable whether or not that means burning <laughs> or not. And that's why everybody is on fire, because we have so much oxygen in the environment. And, and we're Please. all constant. All of us animals are oxidizing all the time. Yes, peace. We're but, on fire. The issue is if you if you go back to um, you know whether you want to do Einstein or you want to go back even earlier in physics, because oxygen is a larger molecule, it drives the reaction, not mm-hmm. hydrogen. Well, and that's. That's the natural reaction, and that's why we have to put in electricity to un- to reduce the hydrogen and oxygen. Um, to separate them. Yeah, yes, to separate them. That. we we got to put energy but, into that to get the hydrogen out as a separate item from the oxygen. But you're not putting any less energy in 
stripping the carbon out of a hydrocarbon than you would be to strip the oxygen out of water. Mm-hmm. Right? right? In fact, you'd be putting less. Does well, that make sense? Um, yes. Because oxygen is a smaller molecule than, or smaller atom than carbon. All right, I'll have to look up those energy numbers, but but I'm I'm totally with you, and that's where we were going. Was that you can run a little bit of electricity with with a couple of different metals as an anode and a cathode into water, and generate hydrogen and oxygen out of that, and and have it separate and extract that hydrogen and save the oxygen if you want or release it back into the atmosphere and mix that hydrogen back up with the oxygen later in a what i would still consider a combustion a burning piece Uh, it's it's flammable yeah um by an npa by all all criteria Uh, the other side note from that nova program you can also use it as a substitute for natural gas in home cooking environments. Mm-hmm. And then you don't have the new scare of carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide accumulation in the home. Benzene, polyaromatic hydrocarbons, particulates. Well, there's, there's a long list of things that can come from burning your gas stove. Yeah. Yes and no. If you're, if you're up here on the coast where you're primarily burning propane, you're burning one distillate. You're not really going to get the, the the polyaromatics that you would get from natural gas. Oh, why is that? Because propane's a three-carbon chain, and, and natural gas is mostly a one-carbon. No. Absolutely incorrect. Natural gas is a basket of hydrocarbons. Oh, but but when I I said I I said I said mostly, and it's something like you know, sixty percent methane, which is one carbon, and you know, ten percent ethane, which is two, and two percent propane, which is three, and half a percent butane, which is. Oops! Did I skip one? Um, anyhow. Yeah, but but here but here's the issue when you when you when you got to compress to liquefy it to put it in a pressurized vessel so that you can have it in a tank or a truck and deliver it or a boat and deliver it. You need to single out to one format. Mm-hmm. And they because uh, when you do a basket format. You're going to have, by the time you get the rest of it liquefied, some of it will be solid. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, you know. In general, the 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 source of propane in the American market over the past twenty years has shifted from petroleum, and hence the name liquefied petroleum gas (LPG) is another name for propane. Um, right. But uh, a majority of it now is coming from condensing the propane out of natural gas so that it's more pure methane that's getting shipped down those pipes. No, no, it's not methane, it's propane. No, what's going down, what's going down the natural gas pipes? When you're, when you're buying natural gas in the city, it's mostly methane. 
Right. Huge, okay. Hugely so. Um, and in fact, they, they're, they're condensing the propane out of it and selling that as propane to us outside of suburbia. And more, yeah, more, okay. of, more of our propane is coming from condensing it out of natural gas now than coming from, from petro- petroleum refineries. And, and that is largely driven because of the change in consumption of distillates. So originally, you would flare off from a cracker what couldn't be turned into diesel packs or other distillates mm-hmm. that you could sell. And so that's the right. LPG origin that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But... You know, there there was a conservation of that, and so there. I think there is still a fair amount of that um, fraction being pulled off. But yes, you're right. It's a lot easier to take it out of natural gas at a processing plant before you put everything else back in the pipe and send it six thousand miles wherever the hell you want. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so. Uh, I was thinking on a related note, you could mix in a little bit of hydrogen into that natural gas pipe stream, and no one would notice, and we would seriously... Uh, re- no, it, 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 the BTU per pound changes. It does, so it does, I, I, but I said mix in a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, that's why if, if, you, if you get a, you know, a stove for natural gas, and you put it in your house for LP... It ain't gonna work, pots. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it'll work. You just might melt your pot. <laughs> and and the other way around, you might not be able to cook adequately. Um, and exactly. and and that's why there's a limit on how much they could mix in of hydrogen into the natural gas supply. But they're experimenting with that, and uh, and you might start to see a new orifice for for. Various different um, natural gas and hydrogen mixes, which is all you have to do to change between propane and and natural gas is a different size orifice. Yes. However, as you alluded to earlier, when you go to the smaller molecule, now the quality and tenor of your fitting becomes far more important. Huge, huge, yep. Okay, because you also, if you've ever walked around a gas production facility, you can't see a hydrogen flare. Right. It's blue. (laughs) Ah. I mean, (laughs) that's why you wear a Nomex suit. Yeah, you can't see. It's pretty invisible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and leaks that aren't on fire are even more invisible. Yeah, you see the heat waves. That's that's about it. Yes. Well, anyhow, you were you were leading us into our very next next topic was you know making making hydrogen by electrolysis or proton exchange membranes, which Chris also refers to as electrolysis. Um, it's a form of electrolysis by by definition. Yeah. 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 So, all right. Well, I'll let you go. I I just. Had to give you a couple points because there seemed to be some gaps. All right, that's all. All right, great. Love our listeners filling in the gaps since we got lots of gaps. Um, 
But anyhow, uh, part part of what we were moving toward. Oops, we got another call already. We'll move toward that next. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Hey, uh, keep up the dialogue about the solar panels and some wires and some electrodes making hydrogen. It'd be a fun little uh, <laughs> experiment. Nice little learning experiment. Well, 20 years ago, I was thinking that. You know, back when in this county, uh, hydro turbines were much more common in the wintertime uh, than they are now since since, uh, since solar's gotten so much cheaper and messing with your stream is so much more of an issue. But back then I was thinking, my God, because hydro turbines needed what they called a diversion load. Solar panels, you could just open circuit the solar array and nothing went wrong. But if you open circuited a hydro turbine when your batteries were full the hydro turbine would spin out of control and create yeah, a little runaway. crazy high internal voltages and start arcing and destroy any solid state electronics inside the thing at least very least the diodes and and so you you couldn't just open circuit the hydro when the batteries were full you had to do something with the energy and we used to dump it into heating loads and sometimes people would make use of that heat but as often as not, the heat was just, you know, being wasted and that energy being wasted, so to speak. Yeah, you know, I kept thinking, you know, an electrolysis, a little, you know, home scale electrolysis system. Well, that, I've got a few uh, solar panels out in the yard. It'd be fun to uh, spend a week in tinkering. Spend a week tinkering. Well, be very careful because hydrogen can be dangerous. Well, that's, that's and, I'm, I'm all ears right now. I want to hear more about it. <laughs> it's very And, ex- and uh, uh, a comment on the, uh, on the program tonight regarding uh, converting a device, uh, an appliance, uh, from propane to natural gas. Make sure you get the, the manufacturer's kit that, to do that. It's much, much more than an orifice. It's a couple of orifices, and it's a different regulator, different controls, and some, a few cases, different burners, so make sure, uh, you know, kids don't try that at home. Get, yeah, get it done professionally, or make sure you get all the components in the manufacturer's instructions on how to do it. Yeah, well, uh, I, I'm, I'm not aware of a need for a change in regulators. I, uh, oh, I, I, I thought... In the business. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is David. I've been in business for 30 years. There is absolutely a need and change for the regulators. Both gases operate at different pressures, and you don't want to have the wrong pressure going through the wrong... So, so what pressures... It's critical. What, what pressures do propane and natural gas operate uh, at? About 11 PSI in propane, and about less than half of that are natural gas. Huh? One takes a larger orifice and one takes a smaller. Uh, again, um, d- study up in advance and did, then move forward. Didn't didn't uh, didn't the size of the propane take into account those two different pressures? It's it's almost too complicated to to uh, on, on the radio because they, the best thing is really to study up on it and find out. What what components you need to, to do this with? Otherwise, you could have a real hazard on you. All right. Well, I'm yeah, and I can I could say, Doug, you know, as doing this in the field for some time, working with generators, you know, 15 years ago, um, natural gas and propane generators were much less common than they are today. Um, but at the time, you would just get a kit for a nozzle change out. But today say in a Kohler generator, the regulator actually has a switch and that there's another circuit inside that regulator for propane versus natural gas. Okay. And 
and a nozzle change. I'm out of date. Um, I'm out of date. So I think I think part of what he's referring to is that there's been there's very likely been some major upgrades to the safety and awareness, you know, and the regulation of this and um, you know yeah, liability it's, it's, companies it's, it's, coming it's down the pipe. A, hold on, it's been in effect forever. It, it's a it's an important issue. It's it's not a simple issue, especially on like you say, modern devices going back thirty years or so. So anyway, just just be careful. Mm-hmm. All right, thanks for the heads up, David. Hey, bye bye. Bye bye. So. Uh, <coughs> Where where we originally meant to be going was, you know, uh, one of the biggest problems with solarizing the world is in solarizing the grid that, uh, you know, solar is not available 24-7. You know, it's, we've, we've uh, managed to shave off our peak demand in California so that what they... What really still is the peak demand, if you just talk about demand, is, you know, typically two in the afternoon on a weekday, sunny, hot day. Um, and and now that's no longer the peak crisis time that it used to be, because even though the demand's still highest at that time, that corresponds very well with solar putting out its most power. And, uh, and we've shaved that down so it's flat from, you know... 10 in the morning until 9 in the evening the the supply demand conflict is flat um and uh well really about more around four four o'clock that that peak does still rise significantly between four and ten depending on where you are the the peak shortage right um, as opposed to the peak actual demand, because if you actually look at when the greatest amount of electricity is happening, yeah, it's usually in the in the two or three in the afternoon where right. that peak happens, um, and and that really is no longer a supply problem because there's so much solar, but we're sort of bumping up against the wall because why would you put in more solar if it's already you know supplying the need and uh and hence you know we still need a significant amount of you know alternative ways of generating electricity to you know meet the more cloudy days and meet the evening and meet the overnight and uh and so that's why we talk about batteries and the grid is to be able to store excess solar generation and be able to put in more solar to cover, you know, all of our loads during the day and have some extra and be able to use that extra to run stuff at non-solar peak times, non, you know, in the evening, at nine in the evening when we're still drawing quite a bit of power. Um, and also in, say, an off-grid system, why we would overbuild the solar so that we can use that generator for, say, 50 to 100 hours and no more per mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the winter time, and, yeah. I, I I don't know if you, that fuel usage year round. I don't know if you were listening back then, but it's got to be you know eight years ago or so. We had uh, some folks from the University of Delaware who had run you know four thousand simulations of various different mixes of power supply, um, 
it was actually on you know about a seventh of the United States grid, a little subgrid in the Northeast that you know stretched from eastern eastern Ohio to New England through New York, and they knew the amount of power consumption at every point in that grid, every minute of the year. And they had all of the weather data, you know, insulation, this, the amount of sun shining, the amount of wind blowing at every location in that grid. And, uh, and they put a penalty on fossil fuels for carbon emissions that was about half of the price that the European Union was doing. Uh, so that there was at least a slight penalty on fossil fuel above and beyond its current market costs that did not include externalities. And they were figuring when they ran all these simulations that, you know, mixing all these different technologies in these different locations, they were going to end up with a lot of solar, a lot of wind, and a lot of batteries. And what was fascinating was as the simulations ran and reiterated and ran again and again and again, the solution it zeroed in on was to put in a ridiculous amount more of solar and wind than you could possibly use. And, and uh, it was a relatively modest amount of storage in the final answer that ended up being the cheapest. And they were still, right. they were still using some natural gas. but uh, And that, that is exactly what I'm finding in the modeling that I do for my clients, which, you know, granted, doesn't come anywhere near grid scale. But we find that you know, just monetarily speaking, by adding that extra battery, you go in an off-grid system from paying somewhere in the realm of 45 or 65 cents per kilowatt hour, and, you know, with the whole cost of the system included, generator, fuel, all of this over 20 years, that that one extra battery pushes your kilowatt hour cost up into the 80 cents or a dollar twenty-five even. And that if you can not have that two or four days worth of storage, you know, and that I generally we're telling our clients at this point, you know, we one and a half days is kind of the baseline no, for off grid at the minimum. It's been it's been steadily shifting. We used to do three and four days in the old days when batteries right. when batteries were much cheaper and solar panels were ridiculously expensive and and right. over the years, as solar has come down and batteries continue to get more expensive, we say, let's do, let's put in more solar than you need the vast majority of the time and reduce the size of the battery bank. And we got a call. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Yes. Hello. Is that me? Yeah, it's you. Welcome to the Renewable Energy Hour. What's up? Um, so I have a quick question. I'm out here in Mendocino County. I'm looking to do solar on my property. I have a perfect barn, no, not a lot of trees, perfect southern exposure. I have a buddy who's upgrading his system, and he wants to sell me some used batteries that are about five years old. I'm just wondering if there's a way to get what the value of used equipment might be. Obviously, I want to get a new inverter and the stuff and new panels, but... Uh, actually, I'm more comfortable with used inverters than I am with used batteries. Chris, how do you feel there? I, I would I would agree, but, you know, that doesn't mean they're not worthless. It's just that it's... It's so hard to tell. ...to actually determine what state they are. If, if they're lead acid, you cannot really get a sense of what their, their health is without them being fully charged and testing them at that time once they've rested for a day. Um... 
Yeah. They are lead acid two amp hour batteries. Okay, so they're big they're big industrial cells, so there's hope for you that they might be worth something, but now are they two amp hour or are they two volt? Two two volts, excuse me. Oh two god, volt. did okay. he say two amp hour and I'm I heard two volt but but when I hear yeah. when I hear two and lead acid I think volts. Yeah, well but you know what I wanted he, meant. he has twenty four of them and what I wanted to do is basically to start with is do a grid tie and then eventually use for a battery backup. I mean, I obviously don't have a ton of money to buy all new stuff with the price of new batteries and what everybody's guiding me to go to. I mean, how would I tell what they're worth? <laughs> I know new they're like 980 bucks online, but you know, that's well, because they're, because they're two volt cells, in all likelihood, you're looking more at an industrial type battery uh, in uh, general. He may be know? he may be looking at a Trojan L sixteen two volt. Do they have three caps on them or one? I can tell you. Um, I don't want to take up your whole show, but I mean, if, if they have. They are a Rolls battery. A Rolls that'll that'll be a single cap. It, they, yeah, they do. They do have a three cap version, but they? in all likelihood, okay. it's a single. Um, and if they're if they're nine hundred and something dollars, they're very likely, you know, quite large in amp hour. Um, single two volts. More, more likely to be a single single cap instead of a, a three cap. And and if they are reasonably treated, uh, more likely to have some life left in them. But it, yeah, as as Chris was saying, you need to get them fully charged and and do specific gravity readings on every single cell yep. and do load tests. Um, and it's really hard to tell how, yeah, and how much specific life. gravity yeah. it differentiates too much between any number of cells, and the, you know those lower cells are out and right. shouldn't even be used um, because you're you're causing potential damage between the cells. And that they're constantly trying to charge each other. Well, not if not if it's a single string of twenty four. Right. If, if you're yeah. para, if you're paralleling, that's absolutely critical. But if it's a forty eight volt system with twenty four two volt cells, then then you're not you know charging one into the other and and the nightmare that Chris was talking about. But uh, yeah, but you will be limited in that single string to the wimpiest cell in the string. You'll essentially have a battery bank whose capacity is your worst cells capacity. But if you if right. you do it as a twenty four volt system with two parallel strings of twelve cells, then what Chris is talking about is spot on, you will wear out everybody in no time. Um, so and they'll go to the lowest common denominator, basically. Don't don't parallel yeah. them. Yeah, do a do a forty eight volt system, and on a grid tied forty uh, solar system, you shouldn't be considering anything other than a forty eight volt system. Is my opinion. Right, right, and absolutely, you know, if you're grid tied and you're going to have a battery system, it should abs with lead acid. It really should only be considered a UPS style backup system yeah don't do don't. not want to use it every night to off you know offset, offset your, your evening peak. Like that. yep yeah use it way too expensive of a method to do that with uh, those batteries he did he did use the word battery backup and so i right sub, i in the silence of the radio station here i gave a thumbs up on that thought but uh um 
it's a, it's a good backup battery. I was going to use it for the PSPS, and like instead of getting a generator, I thought if I could pick these batteries up for relatively what it's going to cost me to get a generator to run my house. You know, if I wanted to have a couple of lights on at night, Mike, Mike, if your batteries are in bad shape, they're going to die sooner than your generator. If your batteries yeah. are in good shape, you got a great deal. And and it works really great for the power safety shutoffs, assuming you don't have a whole lot of fire in the area that's smoking out the sun or you've got ash falling because we had that just, you know, last year's fire season or the year before. And in the middle of the summer, I got 20 calls <laughs> in three days from clients whose systems all went down within like four hours yeah, of each other. Because there was so little solar happening then. But yep. and during the power and safety shutdown, you need to be conscientious not to consume as much as you normally do. And, right, and, right. and be aware of what the state of your charge of your battery is. And most people with battery-backed-up grid-tied systems have a generator to back up the batteries. They do. Right. Um, but it, I guess, I guess it, it might be worth it if he's offering them cheap enough, is my bottom line. Is there a place I can go to have them tested? Is there a local person that will come out and test them? Uh, probably for greater than the price they're offering the batteries to you. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well then, I do. How much? How much is he selling them for? He hasn't came up with a number yet. There's a local contractor that's really reputable that's doing the swap out, so he's going to talk to them and see. And I'm just trying to feel out what, on my end, what I what I think they're worth and try to get some knowledge. I didn't know if there was. I'm I'm really I'm really nervous about used batteries, used lead acid yeah, you, batteries. You absolutely okay. need the mo- the specific model number, and you need to go to Rolls's website and download the data and the manual for that specific battery so that you have the exact specs from rolls on those cells and, and get them so that way when yeah you know when you're looking at voltage and current and specific at, gravity at, at the, you yeah have it as they as their engineers specified that particular bill at the very least okay. All right. so I can get, do that. get the battery fully charged and make specific gravity readings that's fairly easy for you to do on your own and that gives you some serious insight into their health yeah Goggles, glasses, maybe a you know a vinyl apron. Don't ruin your clothes. You know, gloves. Well, you can you can wear your uh, sacred jeans. Yeah, you can. <laughs> are you getting my All joke? Clothes are sacred. Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. I appreciate the info. I'll do some research and see if it's worth the while or not. All right. Good luck, Chris. What was my punchline? What was my pun, my pun on the sacred genes? Oh, the the genes that are holy? There you go. You did get the joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have a whole section for clothes that are covered in sulfuric acid holes. Yeah, yeah. My, my, my battery my battery. Better, I've gone out and done it. Yeah, well, OSHA, OSHA wants you with an acid-proof smock and goggles. Yep. Oh yeah, and face protection even when you're working on batteries. Yep, which is one thing I've rarely seen anyone do. It, it gets really hot. <laughs> it, it does, and even the goggles are problematic for me. They get really foggy. Yeah, 
But anyhow, uh, we've only got about five minutes left in the show before I want to put on some music. Oh, my gosh. Oh, and here's another call, so we may never finish our... Uh... Hey, caller, can you, can you hang on for a second? Yeah, okay. Um, I, I just wanted to, you know, plant a seed out there on where we were going with this theme on hydrogen, is that I'm a big fan of the idea of these large-scale utility plants... And even natural gas uh, power plants, take, letting us build extra solar that frequently has to shut down because the demand is being met and there's more solar out there than we need. And that was also basically the, the punchline of that Delaware study. Um, and, and use those solar plants when they're offline and being asked not to send power onto the grid to make hydrogen on site, store it on site, and then at the off solar hours, run a standard, basically a standard, uh, you know, same technology as a gas turbine generator to provide that power, you know, overnight and, and in particular the sundown to nine in the evening when the demand's still fairly high anyhow that was yeah. that was where we wanted to go so patient caller what what's up with you oh hi there dog yeah uh brian here from book trails hey brian um, hi mate i just want to shift the conversation a little bit are you familiar with uh, sand batteries sand batteries hey let me tell you and the listeners about something that's absolutely amazing this is a new innovation in finland which is now supplying heat, hot water, to an entire small town. A oh, it's a, it's a thermal battery, not an electric battery. Let me tell you what it is. Okay, I, want you, I, I want you to imagine um, a circular tower 23 feet high and 13 foot wide filled with 100 tons of building sand. Right? So this is how it works. Solar panels or wind turbines generate electricity which is then um, um, which is then uh, taken into the uh, sand battery, which heats up the sand to 500 degrees. The sand will hold this temperature for months, literally. And, then and that's 500 Celsius. Through, listen, through a heat exchanger, the heat then powers uh, hot water, using it for all you know year round. Mm -hmm. This has been so successful in this community that Finland is now. Um, developing literally hundreds of these all over Finland. And the UK Energy Authority is now, the company is called Polar Night Energy, if anyone wants to check it out on the web. And um, the, uh, the UK um, are now looking at it as a major possibility for, um, for uh, very low cost um, energy. And so energy storage. Energy storage, like a battery. This is a, this is imagine a battery, twenty three three high. A thermal battery. Yeah, thirteen foot in diameter. Yeah, actually, I I am familiar with the concept. I remember an architect in uh, Wisconsin uh -huh. some thirty years ago, who used to dig his foundation footing extra deep. Right. Put in a larger than normal. Uh, amount of solar thermal panels it wasn't the solar electric was just too damn expensive back then uh -huh. and he would have you know something like i think it was only like six feet of sand 
in the base of the foundation. Leading, what was the purpose of having the sound in the foundation? Well, it was to store heat, and they would have the solar thermal heaters circulating heat down well, to, the, to the bottom of the sand pit, there and it go. would take a significant time all summer long to, to make it up through that six-foot-deep pile of sand. And by the time it got to the top of the sand, it was into the heating season, and the solar had dropped off radically, but they had this huge thermal battery in this six okay, feet of so sand that would continue to heat the radiant floor system in the house. So I want you to imagine, this is now 21st century innovation. And this, this, these sand batteries, again, 23 feet high, 13 foot in, 13 foot in diameter, are now holding 500 uh, degrees of, of heat for months and supplying small towns with uh, with with uh, space with heating water. and hot water and correct very cool and yeah because they they have district heating systems there yeah they well they this 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 in this uh, these innovators technologists have created this what they call a sand battery and um, yeah and uh, it's having a very very big impact uh, because it doesn't re- it doesn't it doesn't require all you know continual supply from solar panels or wind i mean wind obviously if it's there but um but but chris has a big point is we americans were morally independent of each other and we don't have hot water heating through neighborhoods we provide each our own hot water I know, I know. and, and then in europe that's much more common to have what chris called yeah. the district um, exactly exactly so you know this is one one of the things about europe not a, a lot of innovation is going on around uh, energy and energy storage. Um, and uh, Polonite Energy, this company, has developed this, this amazing uh, plant. Um, and it's in the uh, Varta-Janowski power plant, this is called. And it runs the district heating system mm-hmm. for the whole area. So this is the thing. You know, I think part of where the, the U.S. has been probably traditionally, is that people have been very much going alone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The right. independent attitude. Yeah, of and it's, it's part of the psyche. And the time has come, particularly when you start, when we start looking at, you know, um, shifts into, you know, major new sources of energy. We've, start, we've got to start thinking collectively. And um, Europe is really powering ahead. And this is a great example of it. Um, I would really encourage all the listeners to to go on to uh, onto the web and look at Polar Night Energy, and you can see videos on it and how the system works. It's extremely simple, very cost effective. There's no bad chemistry involved, and have, also it's very very low cost. Have you have you been pushing this idea in the Willits Economic Localization to set up some <laughs> districts like this? I thought I'd test it with you first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think but, I think the the systemic. You know, heating systems are are a no brainer if you can get all yeah. the all the individualists on board and cooperating. Well, I think that I think you're exactly right, Doc. You know, and I mean, it's one of the reasons we we started uh, with its economic localization in October 2004. It was to start thinking as a community, not only about the future of energy, but the future oh, of food and everything. Feed, you know? Yeah, and you and I, obviously, and, you know, I remember you and I spent quite a lot of time working together at the... Um, Back when I used to live in Willits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we, also, get, 
we gotta we gotta cut it short. We're we're coming up to the end of the hour. I know. And listen, just just a little. Uh, I was trying to call you guys for twenty minutes. By oh. the way, but you were on with this other guy, and um, <laughs> near the, the beginning of the show, and uh, I, all I got was a um, uh, a busy signal. So <laughs> I finally got through to you. But uh, I really encourage everyone to check this out. I mean, I think this is part of the future, and. Um, you know, it's this kind of innovation that I think can really move the dial, you know. All right. Thanks for the spark. Yeah, okay, mate. Definitely. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Yeah. yeah, bye, Doug. All right, Chris. It's time to say good night. All right. Well, yeah, good night, everybody. My apologies to the caller who's calling in. We're, we're not going to take it. We're going to say good night and... In this time slot on Wednesday evening next week, we'll be point and click our alternatives on the KZWAX Geek Hour, and we'll be back in two weeks. Good night, everybody. Good night, Chris. Good night, Doug. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Listen